0: Lisa Banks, pretty girly Vaughn last year. Yes, I know about Teresa. I know the man who did her. And I know about the stitches with a red thread. And there's more I think you'd enjoy hearing. I'm at the hospital now. I'm on my way.
1: Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Just a brief introduction today. We're gonna to be talking about what I call the mysteries of Firewalk with me who killed Teresa Banks, why was Laura Palmer killed, who is Laura Palmer, who is Agent Cooper, and what is Twin Peaks. Most of this podcast will be focused on the question of why was Laura Palmer killed. The other sections are shorter, some are just a few minutes, but that one I think is almost an hour long, talking about uh, all the aspects of what was the central mystery on the show, and I think becomes something much more profound here. So... This is a big episode in some ways, the heart of all my Twin Peaks coverage, I think, at least for this podcast, and uh, we'll just jump right into it from there. I won't have an outro on this. I want to end it where uh, the episode, uh, as I originally recorded it for patrons, ends, and uh, so I'm just going to say at the outset, uh, you can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can become a patron on Patreon.com/slash Lost in the Movies. This episode is going up on May 19th, 2022. And on the same day, around the same time, I'm releasing an episode for my Twin Peaks Cinema podcast feed called The Sweet Hereafter about that 1997 film, which is also celebrating an anniversary now. It's 25th anniversary of its premiere at Cannes, and this is deeply related to Fire Walk With Me. So uh, this is obviously a long podcast here, one of my longer Lost in Twin Peaks ones, and that one is one of my longer Twin Peaks Cinema ones. But if you've got room for both, today or even in the future, check them out. Uh, I do want to relate these two podcasts together and hope people listen to both. When this goes up, I probably won't have the uh, podcast link ready exactly yet, but if you go to the Twin Peaks Cinema feed and check that out, which is in the show notes for this, uh, you can find it pretty easily. Yesterday, I published two episodes, one in the morning, one in the evening. Laura's uh, Outer Circle, talking more about her social... Uh, connections with the broader community or even the broader spiritual world, and then her inner circle, her friends and her family leading up to her murder. So organized the storylines basically based on when they are uh, first introduced in the pilot going backwards. So it just happened to coincide with that sort of breakdown. But yeah, I I had two episodes yesterday, so make sure you didn't miss one of them if you're trying to listen along to all of these. And also uh, tomorrow's episode, just to make note of it now since I won't be doing an outro, is going to be... Uh, an archive reading. My my earlier work on firewalk With Me, which I think shows an interesting trajectory, my development of thought on it, because I started off um, having some real issues with it. And uh, I talk about all of that in those pieces that I'm going to be reading tomorrow. So that will be my first archive on uh, Thursday coming out. Now on to the Mysteries podcast. So now we move back to a category that we used to have in the podcast early on, as I mentioned, It was who killed Laura Palmer, and now it's split into two different mystery questions. Who killed Teresa Banks, and why was Laura Palmer killed? And we're going to do what we used to do there, which is move through the different clues we're given throughout the film, scattered throughout, um, as we used to do with the episodes, coalesce them together until uh, finally we have what the film offers as a conclusion and kind of looking at how we got there. So to start with, with who killed Teresa Banks, we come into the film with some knowledge from the TV series, assuming we're watching this after the episodes, how it was intended and how it was written to be seen. We know that Teresa died a year before Laura. We know the letter was found under her fingernail. We know that she lived on the opposite side of the state, and we know that no family or loved ones claimed the body. And then that's all just from the pilot. And then later we learn that Leland says, they had me kill that girl, Teresa. So that's what we come into this knowing. Very, very little. They have uh, Lynch and Engels basically have free reign to invent an entire character and find a way to make her relevant to this story. And I think they do a really amazing job with that, actually. So the premise from the film's first few scenes that it builds up of uh, Teresa's Just basically based on two shots, essentially. Um, Not even two scenes, just two shots. Each scene is a single uh, camera movement, either back from the TV or uh, rolling down the river with her body. Neither of these shots, as we mentioned when analyzing the the opening scene, shows her face or her killer. So all we know from this is that she was killed somewhere inside, and she had time to react first, and then she was wrapped in plastic and sent floating down a river. So already, what we're learning, it's just continuing what we knew from the show of this idea that her murder echoed Lara in some ways. Then there's the FBI investigation, so we get various clues from that uh, that that case taken up by the detectives Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley uh, from the source of Gordon knowing that Gordon has blue roll uh, blue rose. Um cases that he he has Lil offer clues to. We find out that there's Teresa's murder has may have something to do with local authorities' attitudes and their, their shady qualities. The connection is unclear. That may just be environmental concerns that these detectives have going in, not necessarily having to do with uh, Teresa herself, but the inference from later in Firewalk with me is that uh, Cliff at least was definitely involved with dealing cocaine and also knew Teresa's pimp, Jacques Renault, so he may have been involved with her exploitation and some sort of cover-up, which made it more difficult for the FBI to determine her killer. Um, Some have even theorized, this is something I'm surprised I haven't got into yet, that Cliff Howard actually killed Chet Desmond, that there wasn't a supernatural disappearance, but because he was poking around the trailer park and looking for the trailer where Cliff lived, that maybe Cliff killed Chat. And that's that, that and not the ring was the source of his uh, disappearance. But, you know, that's just a off-screen theory. We're trying to focus here on what the film gives us. So we do know that this was a very corrupt town and Teresa was bound up in all of this. And initially, at least, we think maybe, maybe this could have something to do with her death, except that we do know that Leland killed her. So actually, I suppose it's interesting to take a moment and say, even though we're coming in with that knowledge from the show— and Lynch and Engels intend for us to have that in mind. There is also a sense in which they're creating an independent story. Uh, I know John Thorne, for example, had a friend who went and saw this without having seen Twin Peaks. And after the movie said, well, what was that movie about to you? And she said, well, it was about who killed Teresa Banks. That was the point of the movie. Because that's how the movie sets you up to think of it. And it, even though it moves into Laura Palmer, it, it does continue to kind of give you those clues and make those clues relevant to Laura's own death eventually. So from another source uh sheriff cable's files we have uh that this is what allows cooper uh later on in the series to have some knowledge of her family and uh some some knowledge of what like the the uh what her condition was like the fact that she had the letter under the nail that there was a ring missing uh, he doesn't bring up the ring on the show but otherwise these facts that come into play on twin peaks those are the results of uh, the files from the initial autopsy that the sheriff did, but then also the FBI autopsy that follows it up. So they know she's a 17-year-old drifter. She had personal effects, including a watch, undergarments, and uniform. She had a mark around her finger suggesting a missing ring, and she was a waitress at Hap's Diner who worked the night shift. And from the FBI autopsy, they know her skull was crushed, probably caused by repeated blows to the back of the head with an obtuse angled blunt object, and the letter under her nail was T. Now that's interesting because the T would suggest it has something to do with her own name, Teresa. Um, And this is a curious fact, given that later under Laura's nail will be placed the letter R, and then on the show, uh, Maddie has the letter O, and when... uh, presumably Leland Bob uh, implicitly I guess I should say when Leland Bob goes after Renette there's a B under her finger and of course this is because they're spelling the name Robert but it's interesting that at first it starts with someone where the letter matches the name and you wonder if it kind of goes off track when he puts the R under Laura's nail and this may seem like a trivial kind of Pointless detail, like not much is made of the letters in these, but I think there's a really interesting, compelling element to that, which we'll get into as we talk about the Laura Palmer mystery. As the FBI investigation moves on to Hap's Diner and interrogates Irene, we learn she only worked here a month. Nice girl, never seemed to get here on time, though. Ask me, she had a little problem with, and then sniffs like cocaine, but she never saw her use it, so it's a supposition that she was a cocaine addict. And her left arm went numb before her time. So these are the things we learn from uh, Irene, the first real witness of any sort that the detectives talk to. So they're getting a little closer to her personal life, but, you know, still very, very far out from understanding anything. And uh, Stanley's own forensic knowledge uh, lets the detectives know, or lets Chet know, that uh, probably the numb arm was... It could have been due to drugs, but it was probably more likely nerves. So there'll be, there'll need to be a further autopsy to back that up. I don't think we ever hear the results of that further autopsy from the victim's residence, uh, the crime's, well, not the crime scene because there's no evidence she was killed there, but just her home. They discovered that she lived alone. She wore a green ring, which they see in the photo. So following up on that autopsy clue. And from the area around the victim's residence, the Fat Trout Trailer Park, uh, in this case, this is just Desmond's investigation. The info never gets back to the FBI because he disappears. We discover that there is a trailer with a mound of dirt underneath and the green ring on top. Uh, The inference from the pilot is that this means this is the crime scene because of that little dirt mound. Because if you remember, in the train car, they find the dirt mound with the half-heart necklace on it. And uh, so in this case, another object, uh, again, a talisman from the victim placed on a dirt mound at the crime scene seems significant there. And uh, the inference from episode 25, although I'm not sure if we see the symbol. I don't think we see the symbol yet at this point of the Owl Cave, but, but when we eventually do... There's an inference from episode 25 on the series that this is related to the Owl Cave symbol and thus probably has some connection to the Black Lodge that uh, the FBI and sheriff's team are hunting for when they go into Owl Cave and see that symbol eventually on a wall that is on the ring. More or less, again, elongated versus squared off, but same general shape. So those are all the clues that we gather from the Chet and Sam investigation. Then there's a follow-up FBI investigation conducted by Dale Cooper, where he's mostly looking into Chet Desmond's disappearance, not so much the Teresa case, since nothing had come of that, really. And uh, again, from the area around the victim's residence, Fat Trout Trailer Park, uh, at this point now, uh, we know, or, or it's implied that it's a crime scene, um, because that mound suggests that Teresa was murdered in this trailer park, albeit probably not at her trailer. Uh, the trailer over the ring is gone now, and we find out two families named Chalfont lived uh, in this in this area, in this trailer that was there, that was there when Chet disappeared. And we can make an inference from episodes 9 and 16, and also later in Firewalk with me, that a lodge presence was in the park in the form of the grandmother and the grandson. Uh, who stood in for a family named Tremond in the series, and here apparently stand in for a family called Chalfonts. And the credits actually list them as the Tremonds and Chalfonts. So those are all the clues we get from the FBI. Lots of disparate information that's hard to weave together, particularly from what they know. Then we get more clues from Laura's own realizations. First source is her dream or vision. We see that Teresa's ring is something that the little man from another place wants Laura to know about. And that he tells her, uh, oh, and that um, the other man there, who we know to be Cooper, but Laura just sees as a man in a suit, tells her not to take this ring. Then we see her arm is numb. She sees a bloody woman in, in bed next to her who delivers a cryptic message. And then when that woman disappears, she sees Teresa's ring in the palm of her hand. She clasps it while looking out into her hallway and sees the fan is not moving before glimpsing herself in the picture on her wall. So all of these images kind of coming at us, these sensations, and we have to kind of grasp at them and make something of them if we will. But uh, we'll have to sort of gather those clues and coalesce them into some sort of meaning as we go along. From another source, Jacques Renault, uh, Laura hears when, when Renette mentions blackmail, Jacques says, she called me. She asked me what your father's looked like. So now she has some inclination to understand that maybe her father was somehow involved with Teresa and that there was a conversation about her father with Teresa shortly before she died. From another source, this angry man yelling at them in traffic, Philip Gerard, as we know him, although Laura is not quite sure who he is, he waves Teresa's ring at Laura and says, You stole the corn. I had it canned above the store. M- miss the look on her face when it was opened. There was a stillness like the Formica tabletop. The thread will be torn, Mr. Palmer. The thread will be torn. It's him. It's your father. So second time I've read that out, because I read that out in the mythology as well, but it makes sense to kind of collect it as uh, evidence, so to speak, at this point. And then finally, after all of these clues being pulled together, we're, we're getting more and more of an idea that this had something to do with Leland, even if we don't understand quite how or why yet, we get confirmation That Leland is indeed the killer from his flashback. So the first source is Flesh World. We see that Teresa is a prostitute who reminds Leland of Laura. So now we're starting to piece it together. Okay, so his attraction to his own daughter, um, as we know from other parts of the story, his abuse of his own daughter is what drew him to Teresa in the first place. And then from the botched rendezvous where he's supposed to go hook up with her and her friends. It turns out the friends are uh, his own daughter and her friend. So he sees Lara as one of the girls that Teresa has arranged an orgy with, and he freaks out and leaves. And then uh, between that, knowing that she called uh, Jacques and asked about Leland uh, before she died, just hearing that dialogue very offhand in in the in party land, in the nightclub. We have to piece this all together ourselves, but it seems that uh, this, this had to do with Leland's motive for killing Teresa. And indeed, we do see a flashback of him directly smashing her head with a pipe in a trailer. So yes, he killed her. And the why of it is a little muddled until we go back through the film. So let's gather clues and then look at the big picture. Pulling together everything that we've just laid out, Uh, To start with, from the series, we know Teresa Banks died a year before Laura Palmer, had her body similarly marked with a letter under the fingernail, but lived on the opposite side of the state and was an unknown figure, who we eventually learned that Leland Palmer was pushed to kill by a mysterious they. So that's all we know from the show. In addition to that, we now know Teresa was killed inside while shouting for Leland to spare her, and then wrapped her, and then he wrapped her in plastic and sent her adrift down a river. The FBI discovers she was a teenage drifter whose skull was crushed and wore a green ring on her left hand, which went numb on at least one occasion, and now has a small piece of paper with the letter T under the ring fingernail. A ring which is missing until one agent finds it on the mound under a trailer where two families named Chalfont, one of them an old lady and a little boy, resided. Teresa worked on the night shift at a seedy diner, where she got along with co-workers, but was often late and suspected of cocaine use, in a town whose police force is corrupt and tied to the drug trade. Laura is shown Teresa's ring, which she recognizes from her memory of Teresa, in a dream or vision where her own left arm goes numb, just like Teresa's, before she discovers the ring in her hand, and uh, also shown the ring by a stranger in her waking life who tells her, "'It's your father.'" Laura and Renette recall being friends and co-workers in the sex trade who were all trafficked by the pimp Jacques Renault, whom Teresa called to ask about Laura's and Renette's fathers shortly before she died, probably in relation to a blackmail scheme. Leland recalls spotting her photo in Flesh World and being attracted to her because she reminded him of his daughter, only to discover that she actually knew his daughter, who was a fellow prostitute, when a coincidental rendezvous was arranged by Teresa. Leland killed Teresa by smashing her over the head with a pipe in a trailer that does not look like hers when she is not wearing the ring. So, with all of that in mind, and that's a lot of information, more than we would get in a single episode of the show, really the whole mystery right there. In short, Teresa Banks, a sexually trafficked, drug-addicted teenage drifter without known family and with a connection to a mysterious occult ring, and also a couple spirits known as the Chow Font, discovered that one of her Johns had a daughter, also involved in the sex trade, decided to blackmail him with this knowledge, and was murdered instead of paid off. So that's what we know about Teresa from this film by the end of it. We understand that when she tried to exert power over Leland, uh, there was a, uh, a lethal response from him, and that's pretty straightforward. It's a sordid crime story not hugely surprising not shocking in a way Uh, it has this other supernatural element to it which doesn't quite make sense yet except through laura's story which we'll get into here and uh, this this the significance of this to the laura story i think becomes more clear as we go through laura's mystery and in this film again laura's mystery is not who killed her um, and even with Teresa, it wasn't exactly who killed her because we did know La- Leland killed her, but um, we didn't know the circumstances of it all. From the show, we do kind of know the circumstances of why, Le- of how Leland killed her, and the why is left a little vague. It just seems there was an evil spirit involved, and he wanted to possess Laura. And uh, so, so let's just look at that. As a reminder, here's where we left the question of who killed Laura Palmer in episode 16 after Leland Palmer's confession. Laura Palmer was murdered by her sexually abusive father Leland, a serial killer possessed by the spirit Bob, whom he invited inside of himself as a boy, and who is part of the mysterious Them, seeking more hosts. When Laura refused, she was killed. This may have satisfied Mark Frost and many viewers, but it did not satisfy David Lynch, who wanted to dig deeper. We've already seen how fleshing out the Teresa Banks investigation provides further clues into the spiritual and psychological momentum leading up to Laura's death, particularly on Leland's part. But where did Laura's refusal to allow Bob to possess her come from? What form did it take? And why was this the particular moment of resistance that led to her death? So this is fascinating because... As I mentioned many times on the show, we talk about it, we investigate the clues. It's more of a standard procedural thing, even with its quirky touches. It's, okay, who killed this girl? What's the motive? You know, it's it's even a game of Clue in some ways. Like I said, they made a board game out of it. And then the film is far more serious in that way. I think the show is too at times, but it sort of winds it around this coy game. And here it becomes... A much more profound question. So there's some irony here in that there is still something of a procedural process going on, but the terms and the meanings of it are very flipped. So to start with, this time Laura herself is the investigator into the conditions of her own life and death. Although Leland makes discoveries and decisions throughout the film, those have mostly been dealt with in the Teresa Banks case. So all of the clues we discuss in the Laura story will be turned up by Laura Palmer's detection herself. However, there are also revelations that are new to us, but all too familiar to Lara, which we learn along the way just through our observations of her life. So let's start with her life leading up to her death. This is something we discussed as the show went along, how there were sort of two distinctions to the investigations. One was uh, what her life was up to the point of death, leading to why it might have happened, but then also the circumstances of the murder itself. So for the life leading up to the death, the premise That we start with is Laura is uh, superficially a popular pretty high school girl with a loyal best friend and a cool boyfriend in a pleasant Pacific Northwest neighborhood. However, she is secretly using cocaine, secretly seeing a second boyfriend, causing friction with her main boyfriend, although he doesn't know why she's hostile to him. She goes out at night by herself and expresses despair that, in her words, the angels have all gone away. This is where she is when new developments and discoveries occur, which will lead to her murder a week later. We learn from dialogue with Harold that Bob has been, quote, having her since she was 12 and comes into her window and he wants to be her or he'll kill her. So there's two things going on here. One is a very literal sexual molestation. The other, like a more metaphysical idea of demon possession and, and, uh, the sort of the temptation and being overwhelmed by evil. We learn from Laura's encounter under the fan that Bob wants to taste through her mouth, so further reinforcing this idea that he he really doesn't just want to have her, he wants to be her somehow. We learn from the visit to the roadhouse that Laura is a prostitute who is pimped by Jacques. We learn from dialogue with Renette that Laura and Renette worked at One-Eyed Jack's. And finally, we learn from Leland's actions on the night that he rapes Laura uh, something that this is this is one of the few revelations about this this uh, aspect of Laura's life that she's actually not present for. It's just something we're shown by the film, which is Leland drugging Sarah with a glass of milk, and she seems like she may have some idea of what's going on. So that is one of the few things we we do learn about Laura's life that Laura herself may not even fully realize. Now, beyond all of that from from watching Laura and her just her daily encounters and her horrors that she has to deal with, she also is leading something of an active investigation herself. She is, as I said, like kind of the detective in this movie in a way. Uh, the area of inquiry is what Bob himself knows, and uh, from the torn pages of the secret diary she 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 sees that. He is, uh, he's accessed her 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 thoughts. There, he's he's seen her diary and he's actually removed pages from it. And uh, she shares this knowledge and evidence with Harold, takes it to him and shows him that uh, that that Bob basically has pried into the deepest, most private recesses of even her mind at this point. And then from the Tremonts um, and her own return home what once they give her that picture of the open door Laura discovers that uh Bob knows her hiding place and we could have presumed this before since he obviously tore the pages out of the diary and therefore must have you know found it there but now she actually sees him in that spot in that corner and and that is it's just further confirmation of this horrible idea that nothing is secret or private from him and this is, in a way, the. it's odd to say this. I mean, she's uh, abused by her father later in the film. She is killed by him at the end of the film. But in some ways, spiritually, this moment where the narrative was really getting rolling is like the lowest point. It's the nadir because there's nothing Bob can't touch at this point. Even her private thoughts are subject to him. And this is where, but even in that moment, What leads her to that full discovery is also this open-door picture, which is going to offer her some sort of way out, too. So another area of inquiry for Laura is who Bob is. This even more important, I think, than what he knows is what his actual identity is, That this idea that he isn't just a spirit that kind of haunts her. There's somebody that he is a masking so from the Tremons and her her uh taking that picture home we find out that her father is there when Bob is so she sees Bob in the hiding place she runs outside slides in the bushes and she sees him come out of the house and it's that horrible moment of knowledge there from the abusive dinner where he yells at her about washing her hands we see that her father is acting kind of like Bob in a terrorizing manner that there is uh you know, this is confirmation. So if there was already like a visual confirmation of like, here's Bob, here's Leland. Now there's a kind of a psychological confirmation there that he is the abuser. And then uh, from Leland himself, from his, you know, his own lips, what he says, he tells her that he was indeed at the house that day. So just further confirmation of what she already saw with her own eyes, but showing, you know, you're not crazy you're not hallucinating like he just told you yeah you're right even if he tried to couch it in something else and then from the night that uh, bob comes in through her window she gets the final confirmation that yes that that all of this has been leading towards her father is definitely bob when she says who who are you who are you and then is confronted with his face above her in the bed that's that's really the last straw and at that point there's no going back whatsoever So now we know that Bob, uh, we know what he knows, we know what he wants, we know who he is and why that's such a horrible thing. But now there's another question, which is, what does Leland want? Because again, I think the film pushes us to consider him not just as merely some puppet, some vessel for an evil spirit, but with someone as his own agency and motivations. And we saw how that played out in the Teresa storyline. So how does that play out in the Laura storyline? So from that abusive dinner and also the standing on the steps and watching her and James, we see that he wants to know the identity of her secret lover, that there's this jealousy driving him. That necklace is a symbol, the necklace that he tears off her and puts on the mound just as he put Teresa's ring uh, on the mound in uh, under the trailer. this this token of like independence is uh is placed there ritualistically. So the necklace, the identity of the lover is very important to him. Uh, also from that abusive dinner, there is a sense of uh, need for cleanliness, um, not merely physical dirt, but like this idea that she's unclean in some fundamental way. And of course, he is the one who... Uh, has imposed upon her that which he is rejecting. You know, he sexualized his own daughter, and then he's re- rejecting, angrily rejecting her sexuality and turning it on her in this accusatory, abusive way. So we see that this is also a, a, strong, um, a strong push coming from him there. And then finally, again, from that abusive dinner, there's there's a lot that comes out in that moment. Another thing is this idea of control over her, So not just the jealousy of wanting to know the lover, not just the pathological um, emotions of feeling that she's sexualized and shouldn't be, but also just the literal domination, the feeling that he has to have authority over her, the way he looms over her as he holds her hands, the way he orders her around and tells her what to do. There is a really strong sense in this that he is asserting some kind of mastery that he feels he has over her. From the first visit to her bedroom, I'm talking about the one where he's very tender and calls her his princess. We find out that he also wants her love as a daughter, in addition to all of the other more sordid, more controlling things he wants. He wants her to love him as a father. There's this conflict within there where he wants to be multiple things to her. And uh, in this moment, it's the more straightforward uh, father-daughter bond that he's seeking from her and and trying to coax out of her. And again, I think the film challenges us to see how this, this really, you know, it it taken out of this darker context, this, this um, emotion that most people can relate to and feel is a good thing can also be kind of manipulated and taken in a way and used as a tool of subjugation, uh, especially in conjunction with his more overtly abusive Aspects, you know, I've, I've said before this idea he's locking her up in the tower. He he is the the witch locking her in the tower and the dragon coming to get her from the tower at the same time. From the conversation that they have together after their uh, their encounter in traffic with the one armed man, we see that he wants her acceptance of their public cover. So they have a kind of a story I didn't see you there. Oh, yes, I was. Oh, yeah, I came to get aspirin. That's right. That's all it was. Why are you asking me this? We're not supposed to talk about this. Like, he doesn't say that, but that seems to be implicit in a lot of his his tone and his fluctuation between excuses and the way he turns to her and it's like, okay, you got me. Well, now I'm going to get you. Were you there? I didn't see you there. Are you going to tell me now that you were there? There's an idea that they have a kind of a shared public um uh, a surface that covers their hidden private complicity as he as he sees it and this is a moment where that that aspect of his desire comes out as well i think and then from the second visit to her bedroom where he's actually in bed abusing her the the total kind of polar opposite of how we see him before we find that he wants her submission as a sexual object that this is something he also feels a need and feels an entitlement towards. And from breakfast the next day, we see again, and this goes along with her kind of acceptance of their public cover, he wants her acquiescence in a shared lie, even beyond just the idea of, like, we don't talk about certain things. That even in private, because this is is important too, like he goes up to her room, Sarah isn't there, they're upstairs in the bedroom, the the place of, of you know the scene of the crime, as I've called it. He could say to her like, he could show her some sort of uh, fake understanding and say, "Listen, I know, you know, we have," but he can't even acknowledge what's been going on, and he looks at her with like a bewildered expression, like, "What is it? What is it?" And again, this is a hard thing to sort of describe and break down, and I think the reason people interpret it is well this is he must be just totally possessed and have his mind kind of washed by bob is this idea that somebody could act this way have this kind of persona placed over them but i think this is actually something very truthful about a lot of abusive relationships is this this perfect mask of it's sort of a gaslighting technique in a way this perfect idea of like here we are, we're alone, like, we don't, I don't have any reason to lie to you right now, I'm telling you everything's fine, so obviously everything's fine, why, is what's, what's wrong, what's going on, and this, in a way, is like the most offensive thing he can do in this moment, and she's not having any of it, this is when she tells him to stay away from her, and then from their confrontation in the train car, where he has her tied up, he has the control he wants over her, she's completely sexualized, she's in the lingerie, he came in upon her in an orgy, um, she's now basically completely at his mercy or lack of mercy. And we discover in this, his most sort of vulnerable spot, which is the thing that he wants from her isn't just the acquiescence to the shared line, the acceptance of the public cover on some level. Well, he wants her to have knowledge, even if it's not spoken, even if it's not to be ever shared overtly. He wants her to have knowledge and implicit acceptance of their incestuous relationship. When he says to her, I always thought you knew it was me, he's saying to her, I thought you were okay with this in a way. I thought that you knew that this was something we had, and the fact that you never confronted me about it meant that you were accepting of it in some way. This was his kind of interpretation. Again, this is something I think very True to life, as as sort of observation and uh, analysis of these these types of dynamics often reveals this idea that oh you know that this was sort of a mutual understanding and that this is something that uh, he the real the final thing that was torn from Leland in the movie that he feels he has to avenge by putting her into this situation is the idea that that this wasn't rape and abuse in his mind. And, uh, of course, you know, the. I mean, on some level he always knows it was, but to have it put in his face, first even just by finding her in that context with Teresa, which sets everything off, but then through the diary, through the uh, knowledge of you know, that, that she thought he was someone else. It's just creating this entire, it, it's, it's destroying his whole facade and his whole foundation for all of this. So that's obviously the most important area of inquiry for, for Lara is figuring out what Leland wants. It's such a motivating factor in all of this um there are some other aspects too though there's again this is and this is something that troubled me in, in the first time i saw it it's like that seemed like enough and in some ways it still does seem like enough but i accept that the film does have more than that in it and these elements are compelling as well they have you know larger thematic resonances whether or not i think the film needed them or something i i wouldn't necessarily say but they're there so we can take a look at them and see what they have to say. So another area of inquiry for her is how Bob actually plans to take control. So we we know that he wants control of her, but we don't uh, quite understand necessarily how he thinks he's going to do that, how he's going to break her down. Now, from the ritualistic nature of the torment in the train car and the, the inclusion of Renette there, this is something that's very important. And this is something I actually didn't discuss in the Journey Through Twin Peaks video. I I think it may have occurred. I think other people have pointed this out for a long time, um, and I'd seen the kind of discussions of it, but it it didn't come out quite as overtly in that that analysis. But I think there is a very probable um, argument to be made that because out of a matter of convenience, the fact that Renette happened to be with Laura in this moment, so she's there, we're off together. How do we resolve this situation we're in where our shared secret has been destroyed? I find, you know, I, as Leland, I find out that you don't, um, you know, you don't have the same reading on the situation I do, and then from from Laura's point of view, finding out that, like, you know, I I am definitely being abused by my father, that this this kind of incompatible confrontation of these, how is this resolved? And it seems like one way would to be would be for him to bring her further into a guilt and a complicity. And how would he do that? I think quite possibly that, uh, and this is now, I'm talking about Leland at this point, but Bob as either somebody kind of riding with him and hoping to get something out of it and hoping to kind of break Laura for his own purposes. I think both Leland and Bob may have a desire for Laura to kill Renette. And if she does so, you know, killing the only witness to this encounter, this crime of passion out in the woods, and then now they're bound together completely if Laura does that it would be also on a symbolic level, a reflection of Laura's own self-loathing and a point of no return because Ronette is seen as the dark side of herself, the dirty side of herself, in a way, the opposite of Donna. So, you know, there's a little bit of a contradiction here in that because you'd think, okay, if you killed the dirty side, then you've expunged that, but that's not exactly how it works. It's, It, it really would... Because Renette is also, you know, a separate, another person with her own, um, you know, her own humanity. For Laura to do that would be really a point of no return. And, and Bob, she would have at that point totally accepted Bob's influence. And within the human realm, her kind of association with her father, who has already murdered someone, to cover up his secret. So now that it's a secret that both he and Laura have kind of out not exactly out in the open, but out in the open between them, she needs to be drawn into the circle of killing as well in some way. And that's how I kind of see the parallel, mutually reinforcing needs of Bob and Leland and how they could possibly use this moment, this climax, to take control of Laura. They don't take her to the train car to kill her. She's taken there to complete the possession. And I think that would be done by killing Renette. And I would just point out at this point, um again with that letter, if the letter is R, if that's what he brought with him to put under the fingernail and it was a T under Teresa, that would also further suggest. And this again, I don't wanna say this was necessarily my observation. I think I I seem to recall reading it on like message boards and stuff, this idea that maybe the R was meant for Renette. And With other things I believe happen in the train car that are sort of more my own interpretations, that really resonates. So finally, the last kind of area of inquiry that's a little more vague in general, but hugely important uh, for Laura is what does the spirit world, not Bob, but the larger kind of complex of spiritual forces beyond and around him and maybe opposed to him, what do they want her to know And uh, how is this how how is what they want her to know related to her from the door picture and the dream? So within that, we have the little man uh, says that or shows that they these spirits have a ring that Teresa wore. Uh, The suited man Cooper says it may be inadvisable to take this ring, but then she has the ring in her hand. And at this point prior to its appearance, uh, the arm is numb. Afterwards, it's not. So the arm actually becomes mobile again with the ring. She hears her mother's distant call. She hears a mysterious whoop, which is associated with the little man. She sees that the fan is not running in the hallway. And then she sees herself in the door in the picture. So there is, through this use of the ring a sense of liberation, and this is something I feel very indebted to Martha Nockamson for pointing out in The Passion of David Lynch. Different people read the sequence in different ways. John Thorne sees it more as a revelation of like an evil Laura. I really don't see it that way. I think it's a powerful Laura, but not a negative. I think that's important. I don't know if good evil always makes sense in discussing Lynch works, but this is, it's it, the, the Laura in the the picture, looking out with a sense of um, calm and and peace almost. And not exactly, it's not like the very human relief that we see in her at the end uh, in the Red Room, but a kind of a elevated understanding there. I, I see that as a powerful positive force, even if it's somewhat frightening as well for Laura to see that side of herself. And in that sense, the ring is really... A liberatory force, despite what Cooper tells her about it. From the log lady, uh, she says, "When this kind of fire starts, it's very hard to put out. The tender boughs of innocence burn first, and the wind rises, and then all goodness is in jeopardy." So, kind of summarizing where this the status of Laura's soul in this last week. And I don't think it's particularly useful to read this as like Laura is sinning in the sense of like, ooh, she's you know, going out and partying and doing drugs and having sex, and this is why she's a bad girl. I think that plays into Laura's conception of herself and how she associates Renette with her bad side and Donna with her good side. But I think what's more significant is the question of how will Laura, to a certain extent, how will she see herself and how will she treat other people? Because that's the key thing with Bob and Leland. The reason Bob has a possession of Leland, even if Leland has his own agency and choice in this manner, is because Leland hurts other people, because he hurts Laura, because he hurts Teresa, because he lives also in a denial, in a sense of disconnection from who he really is. And uh, if they can get Laura to that point, then they've won. From the one-armed man in the traffic incident... We see that the ring has some relation to the idea that it's your father. He's waving the ring while telling her it's your father. So in this moment as well, I think there's something liberatory if frightening about the ring in that it seems to be associated with knowledge as a motif. This idea Teresa wears the ring when she sees um <clears throat> when when she's starting to realize who Leland might be. Actually the film does fascinating things with the ring in that moment where like it how it's hidden in the frame even if she's wearing it we don't see it except in the moments where there's something being revealed about him just either a hell of a coincidence which it very well may be um a very serendipitous one or just brilliant uh subtle filmmaking there on lynch's part so there's this idea of the ring as as some sort of um Form of knowledge which gives her some sort of power over Leland, but also means that uh, he and Bob would have to uh, respond by by killing her. It's 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 an it's an acknowledgement of everything that's happened, both between them and between Leland and Teresa. So this all relates to Leland and Teresa, especially given what we've already discussed in the Who Killed Teresa Banks section, suggesting that Laura herself, not just the viewer, may be drawing some conclusions about the association between uh, Leland and, and Teresa here. And there's an interesting parallel there where it's like Leland discovering the association between Teresa and Laura sets him down a path, and Laura discovering the association between Leland and Teresa uh, sets her down a path as well. So that's Laura's life leading up to the murder. So for the murder and the surrounding incidents, we we have to ask kind of the important questions about this. So the first area of inquiry about this is, what is the way out? We know how Laura is trapped at this point, but what are the possible avenues she has of escape from the situation she's in? First, the angels because they have the power to save, but she says and sees that they've gone away, because she sees herself as too far gone. And also, when we hear Renette's prayer, uh, particularly its assumption of a good father figure, uh, because she says, Father, she calls God Father in her prayer. She says, Father, help me And then we cut to, like, Lara with Leland Domineer. It's like, even though she's talking about a metaphorical father in the form of God, the fact that she even uses that language only heightens the gap between what she can believe and what Lara can believe. So this feels impossible for her. So uh, as far as the angels as a possible avenue of escape, they seem to be shut off from her because... Uh, because of the kind of the language and the association around them, it seemed impossible. And of course, don't forget, we see the angel disappearing from the frame in her bedroom. So there's, there's like a literal sign, and she says the very first time angels come up, uh, she brings them up. She says, if you're falling through space, you'd fall faster and faster, and then you'd catch fire, and no one would be there to save you because the angels have all gone away. So Laura just doesn't believe that that's a way out for her. Now, the counterpoint to this is she may be closed off from them, but they aren't gone. There there is an angelic presence there, um, as we kind of find out retroactively when the angel appears, that they were there all along. But uh, they're not gone if she has an excuse to open her eyes to their existence. So she needs something else. It can't just be an internal, I believe, now. That part, that's shut off. It has to kind of come from outside in a way. This belief that there's, there is an angelic um, guardian, essentially, for her. A, a more, a higher protective force beyond uh, the presence of Bob in her life. Second ab- possible avenue of escape is the spirit world generally, because it, rep- it, it also represents a larger force than Bob and a counterforce to him. Um, even if I wouldn't say they're necessarily like some super positive force in the way that the angels seem to be. They have their own interests, it seems, but they are, in a sense, on her side in that they don't want Bob to possess her. What they do throughout the movie is offer Laura things like the ring, the open door that would actually um, break the hold that Bob currently has over her in, in one way or another, either his his uh what he's hiding from her about Leland or uh well he's not necessarily hiding her hiding that from it because he says at one point I never knew you knew it was me so he may have to the extent you know as a spirit he may have thought that all she saw was Leland but um so so that's an interesting point there I suppose is is the question of is showing Laura who the abuser is a subversion of Bob. And I would say it's a subversion of the status quo that exists between her and Leland and Bob in which Bob seems to have the upper hand. So in that sense, I, I do think that it is, I don't know if I would use the word improvement. It causes so much pain and shock and horror throughout the film, but it seems like some sort of necessity to understand and to move on uh, from that and break some of the power that they have over her. So that's a possible avenue of escape is the spirit world and the the tokens that they offer her, but it's notable that inside of the train car the only spirit that Laura is facing is the overwhelming presence of Bob. So once he gets her into that train car and they're winding towards the final confrontation of whatever's going to happen there. The final possession or the murder of Renette as a conduit, as a as a uh a path to that. Bob is narrowing everything around him and making it feel suffocating and rotten. There's nothing inside the train car. So the counterpoint to that, though, is that Laura's life has always been claustrophobic. And, you know, the train car is just an extreme example of this. Uh, that there is, as I talked about, there is a sense of freedom of like a bad freedom of like a violation and uh, and and what that imposes you know how that breaks kind of the the structures that could maybe give her some comfort it would give most people comfort but um, at the same time it's like she can't it's the way that bob kind of breaks those social constraints it leaves you nowhere to go there's no like ascension it's just a free fall and that freefall can itself this is it's hard to discuss this way it's like an idea of freedom and an idea of entrapment that kind of go together um just but but uh it, it may be a little paradoxical but there there is a sense in which she is uh, both simultaneously unmoored and trapped i hope that makes sense so She's always been cla- Her life has always been claustrophobic, but there's something about her uh, ability to access realities beyond this entrapment uh, that we see throughout the film. It's not just that forces are reaching out to her. She has a capacity that allows that to take place. And if she can tune into those frequencies in some way, even in this extreme entrapped environment of the train car, Um, It would probably need to be based on a psychological trigger. And there are analogs to this throughout the movie where every time there is a spiritual intervention, it's not like they just decide to intervene. There's something going on for Lara where it's provoked. Like she's just had her diary taken and or the, the pages were torn out. She's kind of traumatized. She has no private realm left. And here the Tremonts come as if on call. With a picture of an open door that can open something else up for her, with the confrontation in traffic, it it's uh, Leland. I mean, that's on Leland's part where he has this capacity as well. It's like he's just seen a vision, a flashback <clears throat> of his daughter with Renette in the lingerie, remembering the the incident with Teresa, and it's like the one armed man is drawn to this like a magnet, like Mike is drawn to Bob and uh, waving the ring and confronting them there. So uh, all the times throughout the film, there's there's just multiple examples of this where uh, L- Laura's, the the spiritual intervention seemed to respond to that psychological trigger. So she needs in this moment a psychological trigger other than just the fear and terror she's feeling about Bob, something, a desire, a need, a, something sort of external to herself in some way. Um, or or i say i guess i should say external to the the uh situation with bob something else that can allow her to uh, sort of send out that signal so to speak that the spirits can respond to another possible escape route is the ring uh specifically so we've talked about how it plays out as uh, in the spirit world in general but just even just taken on its own, that ring connects Laura to the larger forces, uh, but it also can confront Leland with a token of his former crime, showing him what she knows about what he did, and uh, that she's not denying it, and that she is, uh, again, confronting it with him, him with this. Because the ring is both the spiritual symbol and a piece of evidence in the Teresa Banks case. It works on both of those levels. And considering that that crime itself was an attempt to cover up his transgressions against his daughter, and uh, the after effects from uh, both the the public and his own consciousness uh, that could have come from her uh, revealing, uh, you know, this this kind of um, this semi underside to both of them, both father and daughter. So Laura needs that ring in a way. That's uh, probably the perfect symbol of defiance to Bob for both of those reasons. But in this moment, in this train car sequence, the the uh, one-armed man has it, Philip Gerard, We've seen him waving it before. And he's stuck outside of the train car. The door is locked. And again, doors throughout this film locked, closed off, opening to reveal something. They've played such an important role We now have the opposite of the open door on her wall. We have a door to the train car, which is closed off, shut off. She's sealed inside. The ring is out. She can't access it. But again, here there is a counterpoint with all of these. There seem to be limitations, and then there are little openings. The counterpoint here is if someone's hands can be untied, they could open this door and let the ring in. We're talking literally physically now somebody inside this train car Leland obviously won't do it but if either Renette or Laura can be freed they can open the door the ring can come in Laura can have it and she can confront Bob with it but of course their hands are tied and they have no way of getting out at this moment Um, they are you know they're they're trapped So finally, the last avenue of escape, the most important one that Laura has had throughout this film, is her compassion for friends. She corrupts and she endangers them uh, quite often, uh, James and Donna and Bobby, and uh, it seems to her that she's only, she looks at her, she never looks at it from the side of what they might be bringing to her I mean to a certain extent like she she likes that James sees her a certain way but she's constantly telling him he's wrong uh she needs Donna's support in certain moments showing up at the door saying are you my friend um with Bobby she even just needs the drugs and that sort of loyalty and maybe somebody in a way that she can have some control over uh so she does need these things from them um the you know the Bobby example is sort of a more negative broken one but with Donna and James at least there's still some hope there but it's She wants to free them from her, and she never really stops to see necessarily that that in itself speaks well of her, in a way. So the fact that she doesn't quite see that aspect of it is not necessarily a problem, but uh, in this moment, those friends are not in the train car with her. The one in the train car is Renette, and Renette may be a friend, but she's also somebody that the film has constantly shown us as a kind of, almost like a doppelganger of, or or like if, if Lara has kind of two, a devil on her shoulder and an angel on her shoulder, Renette seems like the devil. And not necessarily because Renette's like a bad influence. I think, if anything, at times we see like almost Lara is, but these characters are seen as emanations of her good and bad side. I've said this many times, I know I'm reiterating the point, but it's... It's one of the most important points in the film, I think. So Laura sees Renette as a part of her corruption. And again, this is probably who Leland and and Bob are pressuring her to kill, if you read the scene that way. Hence the prepared R letter, similar to Teresa's T. Hence the belief that Laura can still be possessed uh, without regard for this other witness. Like if if he was just performing a ritual, and great, Laura, and okay, now Bob's in you. What do we do with this other person? obviously something has to happen to renette uh, but also hence the notion that laura is at a point of no return that's different from those that have come before because there 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 is no way out she's trapped in the train car uh with her dark side in the in both the sense of her fallen side of renette and her sort of you know um, evil controlling side or 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 what could sort of empower her in that direction with bob and also even the contradictory nature of Renette as Laura's shadow side, by killing Renette, as I mentioned before, Laura would not be overcoming her darkness, but rather refusing to face it. Uh, and also, not just to face the dark side, but the way that it intermingles with her light. Essentially, she'd be unable to deal with the idea of the Dweller on the Threshold, if she was to kill Renette. And that was her her confrontation. Not recognizing herself in the Dweller, but treating it as something that is um uh, that can't be accepted as a part of her. Now there's a counterpoint even to this though, which is that when Laura sees Donna uh in the uh party in Partyland in the nightclub and she knows Donna's drugged, but Donna doesn't know she's drugged, I don't think. So she doesn't know what state she's in. She's making out half naked with one of the Johns. And Lara leaps up and pulls her away. So right there we see Lara's, again, her potential, her capacity for uh, compassion and protection towards her friends. The question is, could she also apply that to Renette, um, given the, the darker, dirtier connotations she sort of imposes upon her? Now, interestingly, though, Renette tries to similarly rescue Lara in the cabin when Jacques is tying her up against her will... Renette leaps up and and tries to uh, to to stop Shock and Leo pulls her back. She's overpowered. So both of these kind of provide a precedent for this moment. On the one hand, Laura's concern for a more innocent friend, and uh, and then on the other hand, a less innocent friend, you know, innocent in quotes, uh, having concern for her for Laura. So Laura is able to look up from the mirror of self-hatred, which Bob is holding in front of her face in this moment and wants her to focus on, just stare at that mirror until you see Bob in yourself and it's it's over, it's done, and you accept that that's who you are. She looks up from the mirror, across the train car at Renette, and she can't echo Renette's prayer, but she can perhaps, given her own, I think very... Um, intuitive psychic power. I don't think she thinks and wills things. I think she just feels them and they emanate the way she's able to call to the spirits in those moments when she needs them. So she can't echo the prayer herself. She can't say the prayer, but perhaps she can answer it. So in this moment, Laura does not tell Bob to kill her. She ignores him and focuses while weeping on Renette. She then witnesses an angel appear to Renette, ostensibly in response to Renette's prayer, although the specific words Renette uses are, I'm so dirty. And that's precisely the sort of degraded self image that doesn't lead to angelic intervention throughout Firewalk with Me. That's what's been holding Laura back, in a way, is seeing herself in such a self hating, self loathing light. So I don't think that's why—I don't think that's what brings the angel in is, oh, okay, you said you're dirty, you admitted your fault, you you purged yourself of your sin, okay, now I'll show up and rescue you. That just doesn't seem to be how any idea of angels would work in this film. Laura's never had a problem admitting she's, you know, quote-unquote, so dirty. So why would Renette admitting that bring the angel? I think it's not that. I think it's Laura's emotional attachment to this other person— simultaneously and paradoxically a reflection of her own fallen state and her insecurity, and also an embodiment of the outside world beyond her own claustrophobic trauma. And that's what's most likely to invite a spiritual intervention. So this inside-outside dynamic, the way that Ronette is important both because she reflects Laura's inner state and because she is something outside of Laura, something beyond Laura and her her uh, self-loathing i think that's echoed by renette herself because her hands are untied she can open the door just long enough for the ring to roll inside and then for laura who's been prepared by her dream despite cooper's warning but everything else she saw about the ring to take that ring and put it on her finger so this montage heavily implies that this gesture is what finally clears uh the the risk of possession the risk of laura's fall and makes both her murder and her escape from bob inevitable but the action of just that simple action of hands are untied now by the angel open the door ring comes rolling in laura takes the ring before leland can kick laura Renette out and close the door again that's really just a physical incarnation of what we've just seen unfold interpersonally between Laura and Renette, and emotionally in Laura's own psyche, as it is its own inciting incident. So what I mean by that is, I think the ring itself, the taking of the ring, is almost just an not an afterthought. It's like a, uh, it's like the button. It's like the cherry on top. It's the it's the coda, the the important thing is Laura crying, looking at Renette, seeing the angel appear and and freeing her. So as in a medieval painting, I think the surface allegory is less important than the undercurrent of spiritual truth. Lynch, as a visual and a subconscious artist, has shown us both, the surface allegory and the undercurrent of spiritual truth in the same scene. It's cryptic, and yet... Everything is there that we need to piece it together in a way that reveals the mystery without reducing its depths. And finally, we have our three questions. Who is Laura Palmer? Who is Agent Cooper? And what is Twin Peaks? And we're going to read them in that order since we end with kind of the height of Laura's story. Let's start with her and then move out Uh, towards the town that surrounds her that uh, we approached her from in the very beginning. Who is Laura Palmer? The film that we just watched is the answer to this question. That answer can't really be isolated or reduced any further. It can't truly be articulated without images. This is a long podcast. I've spent a long time talking about Laura and all of it, but in a way it's dancing around that center that can only be experienced in the film itself. So without those images, without the gestures or expressions or allegorical resonances that uh, form a more robust articulation than words can, we can only go so far. Perhaps we should turn back toward the question itself and regard it with the same wonder, the same distanced, fascinated remove with which we used to regard possible answers. The premise of Who is Laura Palmer is an unknowability which the series cultivates with such skill that we may really believe Laura to be unknowable. Her enigma is her essence. By bringing her down to earth as a human being, Firewalk with Me delivers a fundamentally humanist message that the divine ultimately emanates from and originates within a human source. Although I would probably hesitate to call Lynch a humanist in any deeply philosophical sense, what he seeks and evokes is beyond the human, even if still inclusive of it. In the opposite, if not necessarily opposed direction, one could even trace a Christian theme, despite Lynch's own Hindu leanings, and in keeping with the film's kitschy yet heartfelt depiction of angels, and its deployment of Cherubini's Requiem Mass in the ending, a mass written for an executed patriarch, irony of ironies. The diffuse presence of the divine, is consolidated and expressed in a human form in the Laura Palmer story, culminating in a crucifixion. If we start at the beginning of the series and see Laura as this generalized presence that can't be pinned down, and then we end with her as this human being, and her death kind of crystallizing that humanity, I think there's obviously a very Christ-like idea there. Shaped by the ideas of William Blake and Frederick Nietzsche, the death of God theology, which was popularized in the 60s, it traces and theorizes a trajectory of a distant godhead who takes a human form in Christ and then in death is transformed into an imminent presence that saturates all of the humanity around. That is also Laura Palmer's journey. I'll leave it to Twin Peaks to tell it backwards. Who is Agent Cooper? And now it's Cooper who's become the more elusive identity. He was already fragmented the last time we saw him, into a dead eyed doppelganger who chases and the more familiar hero who flees. And then he becomes a masked double who cackles into a mirror and the grinning Bob reflection that cackles back. In Firewalk with Me, he is something more like a husk even though the film mostly takes place before Cooper fell to the lodge, let alone arrived in Twin Peaks. Flatter and affect, and more muddled and even distressed as he encounters mysteries, and quite limited in his screen time, Cooper's charm and capacity for wonder have been muted. This serves a double role, following through on the finale's downfall, well, at the same time, within the movie's own boundaries, allowing Laura to emerge as the only possible guide into the last realm of our narrative. Like Beatrice taking over from Virgil in the Divine Comedy, even if it feels as if we are actually traveling in the opposite direction from Dante, narratively speaking. But if Cooper is diminished, he is also more complex, shattered into discrete components. We never see the doppelganger in the film, but there are other splits, pre-series Cooper with the FBI versus post-series Cooper in the Red Room. The peaceful Cooper in the last Red Room after Laura's death, versus the anxious Cooper wandering around the Red Room in her dream. The Cooper who walks away from the camera versus the image that sticks to that screen. And even the Cooper who was supposed to investigate Teresa versus Chet Desmond, whom some read as Cooper's dream avatar. Jeffries asks Gordon, Who do you think that is there? Will further Twin Peaks provide answers, along with, inevitably, More questions? What is Twin Peaks? The third titular element of the story since its very beginning is both more and less present in Fire Walk With Me as compared to the series. On the one hand, with the name of the town still officially in the film's title, Twin Peaks remains a consistent presence. Lynch takes us back to the show's roots, by shooting in Washington State after two years on L.A. sound stages, and, as he did in the finale, restoring characters and motifs who had been absent for a long time. The pilot is obviously the movie's greatest touchstone, so it could be argued that Twin Peaks is actually more central now than it was in the back half of the show. On the other hand, there are the obvious departures. Aside from James's strange road trip, we never left the community on the show. Now, we spend the first half hour of the movie away from it, in a pointedly bizarre world version of Twin Peaks at first, and then in a major American city on the opposite coast that has no resonance at all with the Pacific Northwest small town. When we do finally return to Twin Peaks, the camera captures a more suburban than rural feel, and many of the familiar characters are never seen. And if Twin Peaks the town is surprisingly low-key... Twin Peaks' The Series concept may be altogether absent from Firewalk With Me. The quirky comedy and melancholy mysticism, the soap opera plot structure and TV touchstones like commercial breaks, cliffhangers, uh, opening credit sequence, are smashed with Leland's axe. Ultimately then, both Twin Peaks and Agent Cooper recede as Laura Palmer looms. Her revenge on the story that forced her out long ago is a restoration that is also a coup and yet of course there is the feeling that no this was Twin Peaks all along the volume has been turned up so that we can finally hear loud and clear the sad song that whispered through the trees in the beginning
0: you made the tears of-